Hi, my name is Jeremy Jensen, and I'm a public school educator in the Denver metro area. I'm on a quest, a quest to learn from as many educators out there as possible about the innovative approaches that are making learning authentic and meaningful. It's a very different world today than when our current education system was established, and I've been incredibly fortunate to have had opportunities to get to know some amazing educators who are working tirelessly to adapt to this new and evolving world. One common thread among these inspiring educators, I've come to find out, is their ability to balance both a passion to make progressive change with a humility and understanding that they don't have all the answers. Hence the name of this podcast, Humble Badass Educators. It's often easy to identify what's not working in our current education system, but it's a lot harder to figure out what changes really are having the most success. I invite you all to join me on this journey to hear about the secret sauce from the educators out there who are positively impacting our landscape. In fact, that's the point of this show, so that these ideas can hopefully be spread far and wide. Today's Humble Badass Educator is Kevin Gant. Kevin is the Director of Network Innovation for New Tech Network, a nationwide network of over 200 schools spanning elementary, middle, and high schools that are working to transform teaching and learning. Previously, Kevin was a Teams designer and school development coach for New Tech. Kevin has also worked as an integrated math and science teacher at New Tech School NextGen Academy in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and later as a teacher coach at the same school. Kevin was recognized by President Obama as New Mexico's 2015 recipient of the prestigious Presidential Award for Excellence in Mathematics and Science Teaching. In our conversation, Kevin discusses some of the key elements that foster successful project-based learning, or PBL, classrooms. He named some of the partnerships that he utilized in his own classrooms and how integrating with other subject areas through co-teaching enhanced a connected experience for his students. He talks about some of the ingredients that led NextGen Academy to high levels of success and larger picture insights of what direction he would like to see our education system take. It is my opinion that Kevin Gant would make for a fantastic new Secretary of Education. So, President-elect Biden, I hope you are listening to today's episode of Humble Badass Educators. Let the interrogation begin. (laughs) Uh, Kevin Gant, welcome to Humble Badass Educators. Thank you for joining me today. I'm delighted to be here. Tell the listeners about yourself. What makes you a badass? And where does that intersect with humility? <laughs> no small charge there, is it? <laughs> um, I'm not sure what makes me a badass. Um, I've, I've done a lot um, in, in the world of education. Um, I've been, you know, I spent uh, 20 years in the classroom. Um, presently, I do an awful lot of teaching for teachers. Most of my teaching was in the world of science, um, though I've also done some math teaching. Um, I, I was the winner of the Presidential Award for Excellence in Math and Science Teaching for New Mexico, um, and that is probably one of my, my favorite achievements as a teacher. So the classroom, an enjoyable place, but also enriching place, has um, generally led to some really great classroom experiences for all of us. So where does that intersect with humility? Yeah, that's a really good question. I feel like we've spent an awful lot of four years seeing a world around us that was not at all tempered by humility. And it feels like understanding the place of others and understanding 
the perspective of others is step one in humility and understanding that they uh, might engage in the world differently than you releases you from the narcissism of yourself and allows you to see the world in a broader way. And, and th that seems like a pretty good, um, like I said, step towards humility. Tell me a little bit more about this presidential award that you won. What were the circumstances that led to that? Presidential award for excellence in math and science teaching goes to um, two science teachers one year um, or a uh, science and math teacher. Um, it uh, goes back and forth between elementary and um, secondary. So one year you'll have secondary, the next year elementary, the next year secondary, and so on. They um, select two people from each state each year. So um, in the year 2015, I was chosen as the secondary choice um, for the state of New Mexico. It is something that you apply for or someone um, uh, nominates you. I was nominated um, by a colleague. And then it's an application process. You have to videotape yourself um, in front of your class um, for 45 minutes. I can't believe that they actually watch a video of someone teaching for 45 minutes as someone who's had to observe many classrooms. I get to about 15 to 20 minutes. I'm a little played out, but you know, um, they, they take a look at this video. They have some written responses. Um, I did a video, interestingly enough, that was really super cool. It was while I was teaching not physics, but uh, environmental science. And I was doing some work um, around something that, that really I wanted to increase student engagement. So um, I had a series of slides that were meant to be kind of disaggregated and understood. Um, by the students and the idea with the students was that we would show the slide and then they would lecture and they didn't necessarily know if that was right but they could switch in and out of lecturing and we could have a bunch of kids you know trying out what they think that the slide was meant to impart and so um, they would go you know a couple of rounds and then I would um, step in if I needed to provide any corrections and make sure that they were on the right track they took some notes and then we went on to the next slide so it was super engaging for the students it got them a chance to do some nice critical thinking make some correlations between some imagery and the idea of and we were dealing with um bioremediation and and um protein synthesis so you know or or energy production actually in cells and so they were revisiting some of the ideas that they had in biology around adenosine triphosphate or atp and so it's just an awful lot of really um, engaging work. And I, I, that was that video that I sent in um, and it seemed to work. It's pretty clear that you really have a solid grasp on, on how to make learning student centered. Um, what have you done to be able to sort of instill that sort of approach in others? So um, presently I work for uh, New Tech Network, which is a nonprofit organization that helps um, transform schools um, from a place of kind of traditional education towards deeper learning. And so a lot of the work that we do is um, giving instruction in project-based learning. And so when I was doing the work um, and, and videotaping myself, that was within the context of a larger project that the students were engaging in. And so I was a PBL teacher um, 
and I, I've done that um, quite a bit, and I've um, trained a lot of teachers around project-based learning. Um, presently, I'm not training teachers in project-based learning, but occasionally. Um, presently, I'm working with um, teachers who are new to the world of deeper learning and helping them kind of wrap their brains around how they might engage in student-centered instruction uh, at the lesson plan level, right? When you talk about project-based learning, really you're talking about projects which are pretty long, four or five weeks, and so you're looking at effectively unit planning with projects. But um, one of the things that I'm really interested in is um, shorter-term engagements with the students that are still student-centered. That's something that teachers can wrap their brains around much more quickly and kind of uh, comprehend and, and, and plan very quickly. So the, the professional development that I'm running these days has teachers thinking about what happens in a lesson um, and they're emerging from the professional development with student-centered lessons that they can run really the very next day if they needed to. So from your perspective, I know you have a huge extensive background in PBL. What does it take for people to do PBL well? What are those core elements? Well, I think what you mentioned previously was student-centered instruction, understanding that students can, with good um, help from the teacher, but students can provide much more guidance for themselves in their education than oftentimes the educational system attributes to them. For a teacher getting themselves ready for PBL, I think that there are a couple of things that are pretty important. Number one, um, understanding their subject matter deeply so that they can find connections between their subject matter and the needs of the larger world and finding that overlap so that they can design a project that addresses both. Teachers need to understand before they jump into PBL that it takes an awful lot of planning. Um, a lot of the time the planning um, needs to happen before you roll out the project, but there's also an awful lot of work in the middle of the project, um, certainly. But um, you know, PBL takes more planning than regular teaching, at least in my experience. Um, so the commitment there I think is really important. Then I think on the other end, thinking about assessment is really super important too, right? I, as a physics teacher, always gave my students pen and pencil tests, but there were other assessments along the way and assessments at the end. So there were also presentations, there were also websites to create, there were a variety of products that were generated that um, allowed for assessment of their mastery of the, the standards and their mastery of the skills that are required to reach that product. So. To sum up, as teachers do, let's see, um, understand that students can be self-driven, um, know that there's an awful lot of planning, understand your, your subject matter, understand assessment. I mean, there are lots of others too, but those are the ones that occur to me right now. So it's funny that you mentioned that. I was just having a conversation with my son, who, by the way, went to the school, um, the, the project-based school here in Albuquerque, so he knows something about PBL for sure. He was talking about um, 1984 and um, reading 1984, and he was like, and you know, I got to this part where there's um, the script from the pamphlet in the book 1984, and I was like reading through it, and it went on forever and ever and ever, and I was like, this is no pamphlet, you know, and of course it was a pamphlet in 1948, and, and so, a pamphlet in 1948 looks a lot different than the trifold that we oftentimes do. Now, I mentioned that just because what that conversation reminded me of is that there are an awful lot of teachers who will do a trifold pamphlet and say this is a project. And um, I tend to push on that, like, mm, is that a product that really manifests? 
a good solid mastery of the content knowledge or is it just something that kind of looks nice and a student can use some key words in there and say that they know something you're right you know and and so when you start talking about mistakes that people make that that's a, a common one is that they come up with a product that that doesn't require much of the students and and, and so that's a I, I think that that's a really important thing to think about um people oftentimes think about um you know we talk about the difference between doing projects and pbl um doing projects is typically you know kids walk into a school um or into their classroom what are we doing today you're having a lecture they walk in the next day what are we doing today you're doing a lab what are we doing today we're doing a quiz what are we doing today you're gonna have a test what are we doing today okay let's do a project now based upon all the stuff that we previously did which is how i did projects when i was a student i mean that was what it was right the project was at the end after having done all this stuff you were supposed to like manifest all that stuff somehow and um that's oftentimes what people call project as dessert so project-based learning, on the other hand, you start off with a project, the students don't know jack diddly about it, um, and you say, you've got to do this thing, and suddenly they're faced with an awful lot of things that they don't know that they need to know, and they've got to identify what they need to know. And so that process of them facing a large complex problem that they don't know about, and unpacking the various pieces of it so that they can kind of move their learning forward with those things that they need to know. That's more the heart of PBL. And so teachers oftentimes don't feel comfortable with the notion of presenting students with something that they just don't know about. And so they, they don't like it because they wanna like help the kids, right? But sometimes helping the kids means letting them wrestle a little bit. So, so those are two big problems, you know, that you see. Um, a lot of the time people don't understand that you can do just normal teaching in the middle of a project. Um, some people, sometimes people jump into project-based learning, they put too much trust in the student's ability to manage their learning and then they leave the students alone for two weeks and no learning occurs. Go figure, right? So, so that's also a problem, right? There's this tense balance sometimes in, in a project where you are giving some freedom and you're also giving some instruction and you're testing the freedom and you're testing the knowledge and you're looking for ways that you can help augment their learning but also then giving them some more freedom so so figuring out that um push and pull balance i think is oftentimes uh, another challenge that teachers face as they they engage in pbl so during your time as an instructor um, what are some of the things that you did to be able to augment that learning, make that learning authentic? Um, I know you did a lot of integration. I know that you've developed a lot of partnerships. Um, can you tell the listeners a little bit about what you did as a teacher yourself? Sure. The, the first thing I did was I didn't give up on, you know, the lesson plans that I previously had, right? You know, when I started teaching, I was a, a normal teacher, but I was a physics teacher and physics teachers tend to be pretty hands on, right? You know, so there are an awful lot of labs. And so the first thing that I occurred to me was, is there a way that I can take labs that seem to be really interesting and um, maybe change the narrative around that lab and expand that into an overall project. And that seemed to be oftentimes really helpful for me in terms of taking something that was already hands-on and thinking about ways that I could help move the students towards that hands-on experience in a way that connected to the larger world outside. 
Um, as you mentioned, um, I was in partnerships. So the first time I started in project-based learning was in Napa. Um, and I taught a combined algebra two and physics course. And so I was the physics specialist and my colleague Megan Pacheco was the math specialist. And so the combination of taking the algebra two and marrying it with the physics was really great for things like projectile motion and, and helping students understand that quadratic equations really do manifest themselves very nicely in the physical world, right? So, um, when I was here, um, I had a partnership with Megan Perry, who you know, and um, we did a combination of everything. So it was 12th grade, but it was all of the four core content areas, math, science, social studies, English. And so math was, uh, I'm sorry, Megan was doing both the social studies in English and I was doing both the math and the science and the science and the math were statistics and environmental science. And so, um, that was a place where we had to make a decision about what really drove the curriculum. And so we decided social studies and government was really the driver. And then everything else served to fulfill the, the project as it was posed um, really from a government standpoint. So that was really cool too, because that was a challenge for me in terms of figuring out how we could fit in the um, the math and the science into the work. And so there was a huge amount of collaboration between Megan and I to really understand exactly how the chunks of the project would fit together. Um, in terms of supporting the students, our weekly lesson plan was always kind of a patchwork, right? It was, uh, there were times when there were definite lectures um, based upon the students' needs to know. And then there were times when it was a work day because they just needed to gather materials, make decisions, do some writing, or do some, some work to, to work on creating their final product. So, you know, um, it turns out that the lesson planning wasn't too far away from the lesson planning that I'd previously done as a physics teacher because the same is true in a physics class. There are some days when you're just doing straight up didactic instruction and some days when it's you come in and you're just going to do some work over the class period and you'll get the teacher to help you out as you need to. So um, making sure that both of those things occurred in the classroom made for students who understood the work and um, also had an opportunity to share their knowledge. That was at NextGen Academy, is that right, in Albuquerque? That's right, yep. Can you tell me a little bit more about that school itself? Like right now in the New Tech Network, it's pretty well known for having a lot of success uh, within the New Tech model. Um, what do you think is the secret to that success? Oh, that's a great question. So uh, Next Gen Academy is a new tech school, that's right. Um, and so it was formed in 2010. So it's now 10 years old and it's still going strong in terms of its project-based learning, which is actually not super common because PBL is hard, you know, and getting a bunch of teachers to commit to PBL is, is not easy. So um, I think that there are a couple of things there. Um, the most important though, is that they continue to hold at their center the learning outcomes. They continue to hold at their center the idea that they need to have students emerge from the school, not just good at math, science, social studies, English. 
they need to have students emerge from the school as good collaborators. They need to have the school emerge as good communicators. They need to have um, the kids emerge from the school as good critical thinkers. And when you start really putting value on things like the four C's, right, you know, or um, those skills, those enduring skills, suddenly it changes your teaching. Suddenly you have to think about how you're going to incorporate that kind of work um, across the board. And Ultimately, any teacher who's engaged in, in deeper learning skills like collaboration, communication, and so on, comes to understand that project-based learning is really the most efficient way to do that. And so the extent to which they hold the, those skills important is also the extent to which they hold PBL important. And when you have a school that just focuses on pedagogy and not the skills, then the pedagogy goes away. It tends to die off because it's hard. But when you have the school focused on those skills, then you have um, a lighthouse that constantly creates the need for PBL. And you might have teachers, even like myself, saying, oh my God, this is so hard. And then you see the students emerge from their school and they're marvelous. And then you're like, oh yeah, that's why we do that this way. So, so I would say, um, I would say this notion of, of understanding the core is like the most important part of that sustainability piece. Um, and then there, there have been some other things, you know, the district has committed to it. The district has um, some people at, at the, the district level who say this school is really super important and the pedagogy going on here is resulting with some really wonderful students and we value this sort of thing. So there's um, some resources that are devoted to next gen that might not be devoted to other schools, um, but it's a fight. And so that fight occurs every year and um, having, you know, principals who advocate for the resources necessary for that kind of learning environment is utterly crucial. And so um, I think NextGen has been fortunate in three principles that it's had. All three principles are deep believers and have been deep believers in deeper learning. And so they've been able to um, provide the professional development and provide the collaborative working space for the faculty so that they can continue to talk about quality instruction. So besides leadership, have there been any other pieces along that evolution path um, for next gen that you can maybe sort of name to be like, oh, this, there was also um, some pivotal things that happened along our journey that were necessary for the evolution of this to occur? Yes. Um, well, you know, the one that occurs to me to begin with is um, the reason why NextGen came about was because we were able to convince um, the local energy lab, Sandia National Labs, that this was a good idea. Um, I had a conversation with Mike DeWitt and Bruce McClure um, in about 2008, 2009. Um, Mike DeWitt said, we need a project-based school in New Mexico. I said, I think I got your thing. Um, I was working for New Tech at the time. And um, we went and saw some other PBL schools um, and uh, Sandia committed a large financial commitment to APS to help build this school. And I think that there's a certain part of the fact that Sandia is a super huge part of our community in Albuquerque. And so the fact that it was initiated um, in part by Sandia is one of the reasons why I think that the district continues to hold the place sacred as well because um, you know there's this this community partner who, who values this work right um, 
and then, you know, after that, I, I think that, that that's the first one that occurs to me. So, um, but after that, I think the commitment is a little different, you know, when you ask for pivotal points, every time that there's a change in principalship, that's a, 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 a question for a school, right? Every time you change superintendents, that's also a question for a school. And so the school's been able to weather all of those things, right? You know, and you know, the principalships hasn't just been weathering. I think all three principals have done a marvelous job of saying, we're a PBL school, we're a school committed to learning outcomes, we're going to continue on in this. But um, you know, we've also changed um superintendents several times, and the superintendents have continued to back things up. And I think that's part because we've got some advocates at the district level, but at the, the, the school level, I think it just has to do with the fact that the faculty is ongoingly collaborating. They're continuing to talk to each other about what's best for kids. And they're continuing to talk about what's the best format for PBL. And they push on things. And sometimes teachers innovate. And sometimes they come up with different ideas, you know. And in, in the first five years, when I was, I, I was the initial coach for the school, and, you know, um, in the first three years, up to five years, Teachers were constantly asking me, am I doing it right? Am I doing it right? And after a while, you're just like, you're the person who's going to have to decide that. And, and I think that they've gotten to that place where they can say, yeah, we're doing it right. We're, we're, we're on path here sort of thing. And, you know, I, I push and poke at the school, certainly. And, and when innovations happen on my end, we, we share them for sure. And, and they listen. So, you know, I think that the, the other piece is not so much a pivotal point as, as much as it is a function of the attitude of the, the faculty. That number one, they're collaborative, and number two, they're collaborative around really quality instruction that gets them to the student learning outcomes that, that they desire. So you've had a variety of different jobs for New Tech. Uh, your current job title is Director of, in, of Network Innovation. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. Um, can you tell the listeners a little bit about what that means, what that looks like? So previously I was a coach. And so what that meant was when a school became a new tech school, um, you know, I would create a relationship with the school and the principal and I would go visit the school on a regular basis. And I knew all the teachers and I knew the principal and, you know, um, we worked towards getting their school towards a, a place of deeper learning. Now I don't work with schools that have taken on the new tech model. I'm working with schools that are thinking about it. And so um, when a school comes to uh, New Tech about three years ago, um, they might say, hey, we want to we wanna go into deeper learning. And we had one answer to that. And we, we would say, okay, then convert your school. The end. And what that did was um, that proved to be um, definitely doable for some districts. But for some districts, uh, the financial commitment was somewhat hard for them. Um, I invented something and that's part of why I'm doing um, innovation is because I tend to make stuff up and um, so I invented this idea of a bookend lesson and we created a workshop around it and it's this like lesson plan size 
way to incorporate deeper learning into your teaching. And so when people come to us now and say, hey, we're interested in this, we say, hey, why don't you do this thing called New Tech Practices? It's a two-day workshop and you can engage in this and this will give you a sense of the PD that you can get from New Tech and also this will give you a sense of what it means to think about deeper learning and how that can augment your student learning. Um, and so teachers who engage in that um, quickly see that, you know, we offer kick-ass PD and also that, um, thinking about deeper learning actually can fundamentally change your teaching. So, so I'm um, presently working with a team of three people. We work in a group called New Product Development, and we're constantly thinking about ways that people can enter into this work, not just by jumping off the cliff, but maybe slowly climbing up a hill. So we're, we're taking a more developmental approach to this notion of converting your school from traditional to a, a deeper learning institution, and so that's, that's been really a good time. What, what are the key points that when a school is thinking about joining the network that you make sure are well known and well stressed so that they kind of understand like the benefits and innovations that they would experience uh, by joining the network? Um, things that might entice um, teachers to engage in this are, you know, kind of the outcomes. Um, we have higher graduation rates. We have um, better college um, uh, sustainability rates for students who go to college. Um, we have more students go to college in our schools than other schools. Um, we have students, and th this is the thing that really just sells people. As soon as they, they start talking to kids at a new tech school, they start to understand, right? The way that they can interact with adults um, when they're 14 is remarkably different than the way that typical 14-year-olds interact with adults. And so when people start to see that there are students with agency and um, much greater control of their learning and much greater investment in their learning, um, schools oftentimes think, yeah, this is, this is really interesting. This is, this is worth taking on. Um, it, it requires a significant commitment, right? You know, one of the things that we push towards are things like integrated classes. If you can, it's a great idea to integrate both English and social studies at every level. So if you take a look at NextGen, every single grade level, ninth through 12th, the math, no, the, the English and the social studies are combined courses. So they're double-sized classes, but they've got two teachers too. Um, and so when you have um, a, a deeper learning school, you've got to think about new ways to assess, you know, and you've got um, what at first appear to be really complicated rubrics that um, teachers need to navigate and need to help students navigate and help students incorporate in, into their everyday learning. When you engage in this work, you've got to um, think about the way that your culture is manifesting, right? You know, I'm, one of the things that I'm working on right now is a culture workshop to help people kind of diagnose their culture and understand their culture. And so we have to have a deep understanding of um, what makes up school culture and what are the what are the levers that can help you move the culture in one way or another um, and when you start talking about a collaborative environment you've got to address issues of equity you know you have to make sure that all students regardless of their race or their orientation um, are like able to talk to their peers and able to talk to their teachers in ways that are 
concretely good for everyone. And so um, we tend to push on issues of equity to ensure that, um, you know, our schools are, are fulfilling the American promise. In light of yesterday's news of um, Biden becoming our next president, there's likely going to be an opening for our, our next secretary of education. Let's say that person is Kevin Gant. What would Kevin Gant do as his first action as secretary of education? So the first thing that I would do is understand that the Department of Education is a big bank and um, that there are an awful lot of loans out there. And I would figure out how to make sure that those loans are 0% interest or they're forgiven. So that um, people who are engaging in the work of education, who have used student loans to get through school, um, are facing the um, lack of, of huge amount of um, uh, salary because they're choosing to go into teaching, you know, um, understanding that they're going into a, a field that's super important, but not as remunerative as say finance or something along those lines. And so to figure out how we can help those people, you know, move forward. So, so I think that the first thing is, is to um, take a look at, at all of the lawsuits that are around, you know, all of the things that Betsy DeVos was, uh, I think, mismanaging and um, really move people towards an, an understanding of, of how we can make education for teachers financially doable for everyone in society, you know? And so if you're coming from a, a poor background and you want to be a teacher, there are many open doors instead of the closed doors that I think that we've been seeing in the last four years. I wonder if we can find a way to make this happen for you, Kevin. <laughs> I think that there are other people who are much more qualified <laughs> for managing, uh, you know, uh, financial affairs. Than I don't care what their qualifications are. Um, <laughs> what do you consider to be your best failure? I quit teaching. You know, I started teaching in, in inner city New Orleans um, and left the work. And um, I was I was beaten down. It was very, very difficult. It was the most difficult thing I did in my life. Um, so um, I left teaching and I thought maybe that was a, a rough thing. Maybe, maybe this is not my, my job. Um, of course, I went to work um, for two years full time at a children's psychiatric hospital um, during the interim. But um, that space uh, allowed me to understand uh, that maybe I was a good teacher. I just wasn't well prepared that maybe what I needed to do was get more preparation and um, understand the work of teaching and the work of the world of education and the work of, of the um, school system here in New Mexico. And so, um, you know, after those two years, I got myself into a teacher certification program and started teaching. And the second time it was magical. It worked. It was great. So, um, and it was probably one of those situations where I might've gotten into it um, a little too early in my life. I was perhaps not developmentally ready or emotionally ready or something along those lines. Um, and quitting and, and, you know, walking away from a profession that I was pretty direly interested in, you know, during my undergraduate work, um, uh, proved to be really helpful so that it could give me that, that thinking space. Kevin, what big advice do you have for other humble badass educators? Say yes. You know, um, if someone's already a badass, that means that they work really hard and hard work um, in education, in my experience, pays off. 
I mean, it really does. Even though, you know, you don't necessarily get all the accolades that you want or the, the salary that you're hoping for or any of that sort of thing, um, after a while, people notice that your teaching kicks ass, right? And so um, when people notice that, then they start asking you to do some things. And when they start asking you to do things, if you say yes, then other stuff happens. Um, I got an invitation in 2007, six-ish, um, from Megan Pacheco um, to come join New Tech Network. Um, I was teaching in the classroom. I said no to begin with because I loved teaching. Um, and, and then I said yes. And it allowed me to start talking to teachers across the country and allowed me to think about things. Um, when my son turned 13, 14 and he went to high school, my wife asked me, you know, can you come back to the classroom? I said yes. And so that allowed me to take the work that I had been doing as a coach and actually manifest them in the classroom. And that was a gift from God. That was amazing um, that I was able to try crazy things that I would exhort other teachers to do, but couldn't because I didn't have my own classroom. So I tried them and sometimes they were awesome and sometimes they sucked, you know, but at least I had the opportunity to, to kind of see those and manifest themselves. So, you know, I mean, saying yes to opportunities tends to create more opportunities. Well, thank you for saying yes, because I, I think if you would have said no, I would have never had the opportunity to get to know you and learn so much from you. I think our, a lot of our staff um, at Arvada would also agree with that. Um, you know, we've taken a lot from you. I know that you've impacted directly and indirectly loads and loads and loads of students and teachers um, throughout your years. I have really enjoyed our conversation here today. I have continued to learn from you. I hope that we can continue to chat and talk and I can still pick your brain. But Kevin, thanks a lot for your time today. Appreciate you. Um, and I hope that we can talk soon. Yeah, for sure. Great All chatting right. today. Thank you for tuning in to Humble Badass Educators. Again, the biggest goal of this podcast is to share the transformative ideas of what can work in the world of education. So if you enjoyed listening, please take a minute to share a link to this episode with someone you think may also be interested in hearing these ideas. If you or someone you know is also a humble badass educator, I'd love to hear from you as I continue my quest in learning about the amazing things that are happening out there right now. Know that the term educator is not just school-based. An educator is anyone that helps another person learn. Until next time, this has been Jeremy Jensen with Humble Badass Educators. Thanks for listening.